So today we have an opportunity to continue our study in the Gospel of John. Today we look uh, at uh, a story in, in John chapter 8, and it's got an interesting premise to it. We'll get into it in just a moment. Yes, but before that I have to tell you one quick story. Um, there was, you know, they say it's really good to laugh at yourself. And there was a moment this week where I literally LOL'd. Like, I laughed out loud at myself, as my kids would say. Um, I laughed out loud, and, and here's why. I, I really enjoy studying personalities. I really enjoy thinking about how, how people are, are created and the way their brains work and their emotions and, and enjoy thinking about what motivates people and specifically what motivates me and my family. Um, as I've, I've thought about it, I'm, I've definitely noticed that I'm much more cautious and Micah is much more adventurous. Would you agree, would you agree with that statement? Very adventurous. Um, the, the number of concussions we've each had will also speak to that. Um, but having said that, I am trying to be more adventurous. I'm trying, you know, to, to get out of my comfort zone more and have more fun. And, you know, an occasional adrenaline rush is, is good. So do the zip line instead of saying no, you know, like things like that. Go skiing. Um, and so I've been thinking about adventure. Well, there was this moment this last week where I had to laugh at myself because I heard myself saying, well, that was an adventure when it was clearly not an adventure. And this is what I saw. <laughs> Would you say this is adventurous to get your gas mileage, like fuel this low? Um, some of us would say no. Some of us would say yes. That's, just, that's poor planning. That's, that's just poor planning. <laughs> well, clearly... Um, I think I need to continue to work on my definition of what is adventurous. Um, but I do like this, this concept, this idea of thinking about what motivates us in life. What is it that propels us forward, that, that pushes us to make the decisions we're making, that influences us to engage in life? And, and this idea is going to come out in the story that we read today. We're going to be in John um, 8, verse 2. Um, or, or John chapter, chapter eight, the first part of John chapter eight. But before we dive into the, the actual text, I want us to read, if you're looking at a Bible, and there's Bibles under you, under the seats, if you'd like to grab a Bible. If you're looking at a Bible, most Bibles will have this little editorial note in there, and it reads like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, John 21, 25, Luke 21, 38, or Luke 24, 53. What is that all about? Yeah, what that means is we have the distinct pleasure and honor of preaching out of a passage that likely wasn't written by John originally, right? Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this. can be kind of confusing, and maybe it could raise some questions in our minds. This does give us a great opportunity to talk about how we got this Bible 
that we dig into every week. So let's go back a little bit and just kind of understand why that footnote is there and what's happening in there. First of all, we believe that the, uh, that the Bible, that Scripture is divinely inspired. That means the Holy Spirit inspired people to pin the words that we have in our Bible now today. Now, many religions say their holy book was dictated directly from God, like word for word, this is God's word. Whereas as Christians, we speak of divine uh, inspiration, that it was divinely inspired. And that means the gospel of John telling the story of Jesus' life is going to sound and look different than the gospel of Luke. Uh, They'll use different idioms, different language, different words. There'll be a distinct nature to the book based upon the human that wrote that book. Now, it doesn't take God out of the picture, but it does add to the conversation um, the, the humanity also in the writing of our text. And so what would happen is someone like John, uh, the gospel that we're studying right now, uh, would hire a scribe uh, to write down his account of his experience with Jesus. And then that account would be delivered to whoever he was writing it for, um, and that person would likely have friends that want that same text. And so uh, more scribes would come, and a few of them would sit together with the document in front of them, and they would all then rewrite, transcribe that, uh, that letter that John had written, that story. Similarly, the New Testament letters in our Bible, um, uh, the letters were written primarily by Paul, some by others, um, to churches that Paul had started. So, for instance, uh, most of these books are named after the city they were written to. The church in Rome uh, received the book that we call Romans. Same with uh, Corinth, the Corinthian, the book of Corinthians. So, uh, so Paul would, uh, again, have a scribe write this letter to the church. The church would receive it and then duplicate it and send it to other churches that more people could know these teachings of Paul. There were no photocopiers? No photocopiers. Okay. Yeah, nothing like that. So they're all handwritten. And these are called manuscripts. Uh, It simply means handwritten. Uh, These are the manuscripts that we speak of. Uh, now, naturally, in this process of transcribing, of, of rewriting these letters, occasionally uh, a, a scribe would misspell a word. Uh, if you've ever written an email, you know what that's like. I have typos in everything I do. Now, understand, they were meticulous. It was their job to do this perfectly, but occasionally uh, they would make a mistake. Or sometimes even a scribe or the person having it transcribed would want to add a little note that might uh, give a little bit of clarity to what's being discussed in that section. And so what we have today, now fast forward 2,000 years later, we have uncovered uh, approximately 5,800 manuscripts of New New Testament text. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, Amongst universities and and facilities designed uh, for for gathering and and, and parsing all this information, there's some 5,800 manuscripts. Now, these are almost all partial manuscripts, right? What's remaining after 2,000 years is part of the book of Romans. Uh, But we have thousands of manuscripts about the book of Romans. And so then scholars come together, and uh, they work on the process of then compiling all of these manuscripts to find what was that original letter in fact, um, I went to Abilene Christian University um, to get my degree in biblical text. And one of my jobs, my part-time jobs to help get me through college was working for Dr. Osborne. And Dr. Osborne was a professor, um, probably is a professor at ACU, I, I don't know. Um, and, and one of his big projects 
was comparing these manuscripts. And so he hired several of us uh, college students who'd taken Greek and who could, who could read the Greek. And um, I would sit in an office with, with a bunch of other students, and we had screens everywhere. And we had one screen that had pictures of a well-known manuscript, which was kind of, kind of the, what, what everyone knew was familiar with. And then we had another screen with a newer manuscript. And then below you had, um, the digital writing of it. And so the, the manuscript, we were just looking at the pictures and then you had digitally what was written in that manuscript. And so my job, kind of like the grunt labor, um, was to look at this manuscript and look at this one and see if there are any differences. And then if there was a misspelled word or if a section of that manuscript had been torn out or there was a hole in the manuscript and so some of the words were missing, then it was my job to note that on the digital writing. Hey, this word is not here or this word is a different word or or this spelling is different. In hindsight, I really wish I knew which manuscript I was working on. I think at one point I worked on... Maybe on Isaiah, which is an Old Testament, but it was still written in, in Greek and in, in different translations. I think at one point I worked on Isaiah, and I, I don't remember the other manuscripts that I worked on. At the time, it was just very tedious. It made my eyes water uh, because you're just looking at, at screens. But now I really appreciate, like, that was like the very beginning of this, um, this, this big project of being able to say, here's what's in this manuscript, here's what's in this manuscript, and there's 5,800 5, of them. Your college employment was much more glamorous and interesting than mine. I was working in the parts department at a Jeep dealership, getting cussed yeah. out by dirty old men. Like, that was, and here you are studying Greek and manuscripts. Yeah, it, it was fun. Yeah. Well, uh, so... After that point, we've identified differences in the text, and, um, and, and, and we've begun to compile them. There's questions of, so what ends up in the final draft, right? And this is called textual criticism. Uh, and textual criticism uh, is, is real, it has a number of rules that kind of guide the way then we'll figure out what goes in the text. For instance, one of the primary rules that's real logical is the rule of majority. So if we have 2,000 manuscripts that have this verse in it, and 1,800 of them say it one way and 200 say it another way, you can imagine which one we're going with, right? The majority will rule in that case. However, there's other considerations to take in, uh, take in as, as they're doing this textual criticism. For instance, uh, in the texts that we're in today, most of the early manuscripts don't have this. The Greek manuscripts don't have this. However, in the Western church, in the medieval era, pretty much all of the text in Latin had the, this, this story and this telling. What it appears is that this was added sometime later in history and became very popular in the West, and so it stayed in the text. But the fact that it, it isn't found in the earliest letters that we have uh, that, were, that were translated or, or written um, uh, by scribes, the fact that it didn't appear in the Greek says this probably wasn't originally in John's telling. However, and and that's why the footnote is there. And what I want to point out is the transparency with which Scripture is revealed to us, right? There's 
it's not trying to trick us into anything. I, I don't know if you've ever heard someone claim um, kind of cynically that, you know, the Bible, well, the church just chose the books they want in there and didn't. That, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, incredible work has gone into preserving and understanding and, and, and then, of course, translating into English this document that we have, in, in, which is Scripture. And so today we are going to engage this text. We debate it. Do we, do we go into it or not? And we are going to. And the reason we're going to is because the principles laid out in the story we're going to read today uh, are found throughout the New Testament documents, right? Uh, the, the message here is uh, consistent with Scripture, and we want to talk about it. Uh, if we took this story out, we'd lose some of the, uh, the narrative flair. Uh, however, the principles are throughout Scripture. And so today we're going to engage it uh, in, from, from that position. Anything else you want to say about that? No. Let's, we should probably get to Scripture at some point start. today, right? Let's, let's yeah. get to it. Here we go. We'll start in John seven fifty three, I believe. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olive. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So a trap has been laid, um, and probably a couple of traps, uh, in that they claim they've caught her in the act of adultery. Likely this was some sort of setup. To, to create this scenario. They've set a trap for Jesus for sure. The Pharisees who are completely against him and his teaching uh, and, and, and what's developing in Israel at this time uh, have set a trap. You see, Jesus is between a rock and a hard place. Uh, if he is to say, no, the law of Moses doesn't matter or apply, imagine the number of Israelite followers he would lose, right? He can't throw out the law, nor would he want to. That is not his position. Uh, however, to say, yes, we should put this woman to death right here in the middle of the city uh, would be absolutely contrary to the way Israel was operating in this area. You see, uh, this sentence was not carried out in the first century as far as we know. We have no evidence that it was being carried out and certainly not in rural settings. And so they brought Jesus, uh, they brought, brought before Jesus uh, a, a dilemma. Um, uh, they don't see the humanity in her. You'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but what they brought is a challenging situation. Jesus is stuck with either the position of uh, throwing out the law and negating it or uh, doing something incredibly inappropriate that would likely also raise um, uh, the concern of Rome and cause major problems in that respect as well. You know, as I read that, it's just one one paragraph, and yet it's like, oh, like when you read it, like you, you can, it's like a gut punch. Can you consider with me just for a moment the humiliation and the shame um, for this woman to be dragged to the temple courts in the middle of a crowd and forced to stand before um, the religious leaders and this crowd as they discuss the possibility of her execution. Like, can you just imagine the horrendous nature and the humiliation and shame there? I'm struck in this story by how the religious leaders had zero thought or zero consideration for this woman. 
Like they, zero empathy for the woman. In fact, they were so focused on trapping Jesus that she held no value to them, no importance. You know, this last week we came here for um, Star Trek night. That was a really fun night. Craig and Erica put that on. And one of the things that we ended up talking about is, is the value of people. And there was a phrase in that episode talking about disposable people, disposable persons. And when I read this, I was like, this, she was a disposable person to them. She was used um, as a pawn to, to help trap Jesus in this debate. And, and so that to me is worth noting. We need to note when people don't see um, the humanity in others. And also, I want to note that um, she's caught in the act, and yet it's an act that takes two people, <laughs> not not one. It takes two people, two people. So where is this man? What, did he flee? Was he just faster than her, or was he let go? Could this possibly be uh, a situation where the, a double standard is playing out, fueled by sexism and fueled by the power structures of the time. I think that's very likely in this story. We, we don't know. It doesn't say, but I think that is very, very possible. What we do know is this woman is caught with a man who's not her spouse. She's subjected to public humiliation and shame, and she's used as a pawn in an attempt to trap Jesus. So they asked, they previously asked Jesus, so now what do you say? Jesus is to respond. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Uh, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Which I have to ask, what is he writing? Like what, what is he writing in the dirt there. What is he writing in the ground? We don't know because the text doesn't tell us, but there's much speculation as what he could have written. But, but whoever wrote this, the author didn't think that this section, that what he was writing was relevant to the story in the way it was, it was being told. And so I'm wondering if maybe the point of Jesus writing on the ground is simply a refusal to engage in the debate that the teachers of the law had presented. The refusal to, to engage in that type of conversation, in that type of confrontation, choosing not to go there. You know, as a parent, um, there are times when we just have to shut conversations down. Like, don't get me wrong, we like to have open conversations, but... Um, We've been asked many things, and when it's, you know, why can't I, it's like the 10th time they've asked, why can't I have the 10th piece of candy right before bedtime? Like, it, you're, you're done arguing about it, right? It's like, no, this isn't productive anymore. And, and that's a, more of a silly, silly, silly example, more serious examples. I, I'm sure we can all think of when someone approaches us and, and, and we just know that engaging in that conversation with that person in that moment is going to be toxic, and we just shouldn't. I like that. This is purely speculation, but I'm wondering um, if, if Jesus is stalling, and not because he doesn't necessarily have an answer, but I'm wondering if Jesus is in this moment giving them a moment to reflect on really what's happening. 
Like letting this moment sink in before we move forward. Uh, because, I mean, the toxic nature of this, the, the, the use of law and scripture, um, to, degrade a person and to trap Jesus, like everything about this moment is so gross that I really appreciate the pause, that it's like, where are we right now? What is happening in this moment? And then it goes on. Absolutely. You know, I think that's that's really important when when situations are escalating and emotions are so high to, to take that pause as well. Well, as we continue in the story, Jesus doesn't take the bait. Right. Instead, he responds finally, saying, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. The words of Jesus are so powerful and relevant, poignant, such a brief response to this moment that diffuses the entire situation and yet so incredibly powerful. He asks her this question, who are you to judge and condemn this woman? I think it said, was was it in the section they start to walk away and the oldest left first? Did, did we? Okay, we haven't gotten there. Um, so he says, who are you to condemn this woman, right? You, uh, with all the sin in your life, look, look at what you're doing in this moment. Who are you to condemn this woman? If you are without sin, then you could cast that first stone. Um, what's interesting is that Jesus in this moment is the only person without sin in the scenario, right? Jesus, who's paused this conversation and then finally responds, says, any of you without sin, you throw that first stone, and yet no one there except for Jesus is without sin. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Having diffused the mob, Jesus turns to her. And in the way John heard this story is written for us, uh, this is the first time she's ever addressed directly. Notice all the, uh, all the rest of the scenario has been Pharisees and Jesus and other people talking to each other about her. And take it in a moment as Jesus turns his eyes to her. And for the first time, someone speaks to her in this moment. No one's going to condemn you, then neither do I. And I think it's fascinating that he doesn't end it there. He says, go and sin no more. Uh, and some of us, when we talk about sin, that's a kind of a cringe-worthy conversation and 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 word. Uh, I don't think that's what's intended here. Like a woman who they were trying to put to death has been given a new lease on life, and I think Jesus is saying, "Now go and live differently." Like you have been given opportunity to go and do something different, so do it. Live differently. I do not condemn you. Out of his grace comes an invitation to new life. And it's 
as, as we think about it and unpack this story, think about the person of Jesus, like who is Jesus? Jesus in this moment does have the authority to judge this, this woman. He, in fact, he's the only one who has the authority to judge this woman. So back in John 5, we read in verse 20, 26, for the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Like Jesus could have judged her in that moment, yet Jesus's purpose and his desire was not to judge, but to bring life into to her life, to bring life. John 3, 16, many of us are familiar with it. Let's read through it in a, in a few verses after that and, and listen, thinking about this story. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And when I read that, I can't help but think of this woman forced to stand in the crowd, and she is being condemned in that moment by the religious leaders. Like she stands condemned. That's what they're, they're going for. And yet Jesus was not sent to condemn. Jesus was sent to save to save all of humanity, to save us from our destructive ways, to save us from our sin, from the ways in which we miss the mark, to bring, to bring forgiveness and mercy and grace and to lead humanity into a new and abundant eternal life. So the religious leaders set, set a trap for Jesus. Uh, while simultaneously treating this woman as garbage, treating this woman as worthless and disposable. But Jesus responds by diffusing the trap and also offering this woman new life. So we zoom out and consider what are we finding in this story, in this text, that's consistent, as I said earlier, with, this, with the New Testament uh, scripture. Um, and it is this. Grace is the starting point. That the means to righteousness, the means to salvation, the means to right relationship with God is grace as opposed to the law. You see, we have in the story the Pharisees clinging to this law. I mean, their entire pursuit and their direction to Israel is, if you'll just uphold the law, then you'll be good in God's eyes, right? Then you will be righteous. And then we see this story play out. And we see a woman uh, who could have been condemned whom, to whom Jesus extends grace and invites her to new life. And that invitation is not just for her, but for all of us as well. Ephesians 2 puts it in these terms, beginning in verse 8, uh, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, the conversation Paul is having here and, and the understanding he's, he's inviting us to is the 
the conversation of the chicken and the egg, which, which came first, right? It's this conversation of we do works, like we do engage in particular ways as followers of Jesus, but nothing we do can earn us our salvation, can make us right before God, because at the same time as we do good things, we do a lot of bad things as well, right? So, so nothing we do can earn us that, but instead, Paul is describing, you have been given grace, and out of the grace you have been given, you are invited into, propelled into a new life, a new way of being. I love, I love Ephesians because there's a lot of this language of what this new life looks like. What, what does it look like to live a life that is being propelled by God's grace? What does it look like to live out God's grace? What kind of life is that? Um, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 uh, says this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. First of all, we follow God's example. Follow God's example in Jesus, this, this life of love lived out. Ephesians 4, chapter 1 says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What does it look like to live a life propelled by the grace of God? It looks like being humble, and being gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to live peacefully with our neighbors and in our communities. This is what that life looks like. Paul goes on in that same Ephesians chapter 4 and 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires um, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in, tr in true righteousness and holiness. It's lofty language, it's lofty terms, and it is beautiful. It is the invitation that Jesus laid before that woman on that day. I do not condemn you. Go and live in a new way. And it's the invitation to us today to put off the old, to know that because of God's grace, we are invited into a new season, into new life. We're invited to receive God's grace and to experience God's mercy and God's love. And I want to say, because I don't think we can say this enough, I want to say clearly that this invitation is for everyone that you're not too far gone for God. Like God, God is in, in the business of redeeming people. He's in the business of changing lives and, and providing new life. So no matter how messed up things are in your life, in your family, and whatever, whatever the situation is, I want to say clearly that God invites us to receive and experience His grace. And then, we're invited to live out of that grace. We're invited to live a life in which we're following God's example, in which we're imitating Jesus's love and, and, and we're imitating the way he lived. 
And we're invited to yield to the Holy Spirit, the presence of God within us and around us, to pay attention to the Holy Spirit and to listen and to follow wherever the Spirit leads. Because we know God will lead us to places um, in which we become more loving, in which our community becomes more loving and grace-filled. And that is what the kingdom of God is all about, (laughs) that we could live in such communities. Let's pray about that. God, we thank you for this day and this time and this opportunity as we reflect on, um, on Scripture on this story and on uh, New Testament text, God, is we just explore this idea of grace, grace that is bigger than anything we've done. Uh, God, a grace that extends um, to any of us that would accept it. Thank you, God, for that. We pray that uh, out of that, you will continue to transform us and teach us what it is to walk in your way what it is to uh, be light and love in this world. Uh, God, teach us to walk in new ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.